In this series, we've examined a number of arguments for and against Islam. We've looked at science, we've looked at history, we've looked at the textual preservation of the Quran, we've looked at prophecies, we've looked at the character of Muhammad. We've looked at Muslim claims and seen repeatedly that they fail. We've looked at several arguments against the prophethood of Muhammad. But since it's not easy to keep track of all the evidence, I'd like to use this final lecture to try and organize everything we've covered into a complete case against Islam. In the course of this lecture, we'll review the evidence and we'll see how it all fits together, leading to only one conclusion, that Muhammad was a false prophet. Many people have come into this world claiming to be prophets. Many people in the world today claim to be prophets. And we can't accept something someone says just because they claim that it's true, especially when many of these prophets contradict one another. So we need to test people, as the Bible tells us, to see whether their message really comes from God. Now, if someone comes with a revelation or a book, there are, again, three main possibilities that we should consider. First, the person may be getting his revelation from his own mind. This doesn't mean that the person is intentionally inventing revelations. He might really believe that he is a prophet, and yet the true origin of his message may go no further than his own imagination. So these teachings would have a purely human origin. Second, the person might be getting his revelations from demonic sources. Christians and Muslims both believe in demons, and we agree that demons can influence people. So we would agree that a person who claims to be a prophet could be getting his revelations from demonic sources. And third, the revelation may actually come from God, in which case everyone should submit to it. Now, it's also possible that there could be a combination of sources. For instance, a person might be getting part of a revelation from his own mind and part of it from a demonic influence. The purpose of these lectures has been to determine the origin of Muhammad's revelations. Did they come from Muhammad's own mind? Did they come from something demonic? Or did they come from God? Let's review the evidence. As we've seen... In many ways, Islam looks like a religion that came from the mind of a caravan trader in 7th century Arabia. We looked at morally convenient revelations. Muhammad received all kinds of revelations that had no purpose other than f satisfying and fulfilling his own desires. Even his own wife Aisha noticed that whenever Muhammad wanted something, he tended to get a revelation from God saying, yes, Muhammad you can have this. We saw Muhammad's relationship with Zainab was based on just such uh, morally convenient revelations. Muhammad uh, had a desire for the wife of his adopted son, and he got a revelation saying that it was okay. Muhammad told his followers that they could have no more than four wives. And yet, when he wanted more, he got a revelation saying that only he could have more. We see this again and again in the Muslim sources, Muhammad having some desire and God coming to Muhammad's rescue to grant what he longed for. This looks awfully suspicious. This looks like something that was coming from Muhammad's own mind. We saw that Muhammad was guilty repeatedly of religious plagiarism. When we look at the practices of Muslims, we don't think pagan practices. We, they're, they're so familiar to us now that we think traveling to the Kaaba, bowing down, performing the ablutions, 
kissing the black stone. We think of these as strictly Muslim practices, but it wasn't that way in 7th century Arabia. These were pagan practices in the 7th century, in the 6th century, in the 5th century, in the 4th century, right up until Muhammad adopted them. Does this look like something that came down from God? Are these practices that came from God saying, Muhammad, here's what I'm telling you to do. It looks like he's just doing what the people around him were doing. And we see this also with teachings from the Jewish Talmud, teaching from, uh, teachings from heretical Christian sources. These stories weren't true, and yet Muhammad incorporated them into the Quran and into the Hadith. This, again, looks like his stories and practices had a purely human origin, namely the people around him. We saw that there are some seriously silly teachings in Islam. We saw some additional ones when we studied the scientific accuracy of the Quran and the Hadith. There are teachings that just can't come from God. They are so utterly absurd. And so when we look at these, we have to ask ourselves, do these come from the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty, Lord of the universe? Or are these the sorts of things that people in the 7th century believed, but which we know are false now? And the answer is clearly the latter. We saw historical inaccuracies. Muhammad denied Jesus' death, his resurrection, his claims to deity. He didn't know the difference between uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses. Uh, he didn't understand that these two women lived a thousand years apart. How could, he, how could he not know this? How could the Quran get this wrong if it were a revelation from God? We saw several arguments for Islam. It's important to recognize that Muslims, when they give an argument, are granting certain criteria. We can use these criteria in responding to them, and if we use the criteria that Muslims use in their arguments, we see that we have several additional lines of evidence against Islam. For instance, when Muslims appeal to scientific accuracy, they're saying, you know that a book is from God when it's scientifically accurate. Well, if that's the case, then the Quran is not the word of God, because what do we see in there? We see Alexander the Great traveling so far west, he finds a place where the sun sets. He finds it going down in a pool of murky water. We find that stars are missiles that God uses to hurl at demons when they try to sneak into heaven. We find that there are seven heavens and seven earths. We find that sperm are produced between the ribs and the backbone. These sorts of things are all false. And so if Muslims are setting up scientific accuracy as the criterion of truth, then we have evidence that Islam is false. We looked at the argument from internal consistency. Well, if Muslims make internal consistency a criterion of truth, the Quran fails, and it can't be the word of God. Think about the issue of internal consistency. Uh, is the Quran internally consistent? No, Muslims have their doctrine of abrogation. They try to explain away why there are so many differences. And as we saw, we looked at a long list of discrepancies in the Quran, places where it teaches one thing in one place and something completely different in another place. So if internal consistency is the criterion, then the Quran fails. Now think about comparing that with the Bible. The Bible is one book from Genesis to Revelation. It wasn't written by one person in one place at one time. This was written over 1,400 years by around 40 different authors in all sorts of different situations. And once it was compiled into one book, it formed one, co one coherent revelation from the beginning of time till the end of the time. Look at the Quran. It's 
It's a mess. I'm sorry. It's a mess. There is no coherent structure to the Quran. So if Muslims are going to make internal consistency the criterion of truth, they'd certainly have to reject the Quran and adopt a, adopt a different book, perhaps the Bible. Muslims appeal to doctrinal continuity, that their teachings are continuation of the teachings of the prophets of the Old and New Testaments. Well, when we look at this, we see that the teachings are totally, totally inconsistent with the teachings of Christianity. Now, if that's the case, we have further evidence that since Muhammad believed that his revelations were consistent, since he believed those people were true messengers and that they weren't, this isn't coming from God. It has to be coming from somewhere else. And when we look at what he thought, we see the same teachings that he was teaching in various groups around Mecca at his time. So we have very good reasons to think that the origin of Muhammad's message was his own 7th century Meccan mind, that the source was his own, uh, his own desires and the teachings of the people around him. But we should also look to see if there might be something darker at work. And here we certainly find plenty of evidence that something beyond Muhammad was at work in some of his teachings Islam seems like it's designed to keep people from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The core of the Christian gospel consists of three doctrines. Jesus is the divine son of God who died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead. So three things, son of God, death on the cross, resurrection. These have been the three key elements of the Christian gospel since the first century. And yet we're also told in the New Testament that false prophets and false teachers were going to come and that they were going to lead many astray and that they would try to corrupt the true gospel. Muhammad, of course, comes along. You Christians believe in one God? So do I. You believe in Jesus? So do I. You believe Jesus was the Messiah? So do I. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin? So do I. I'll agree with you guys on almost everything except... Three little things. One, Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Two, he didn't die on the cross. And three, he didn't rise from the dead. Now, as Christians, we've been expecting that. That's exactly what we would expect a false teacher to bring. So this doesn't look like something that was random or something that came just from Muhammad's mind. This looks like exactly what we would expect false teachers to do based on the New Testament. We also saw from Muslim records that when Muhammad began receiving his revelations, his first impression was that he was demon-possessed. We also know that after his experience in the cave, whatever it was, he became so depressed that he was suicidal. Now, what did Muhammad see in that cave? I don't know. But I know this. When Muhammad ran out of that cave, depressed and suicidal and terrified, he was convinced that he had seen a demon. That is a problem. We saw that according to our earliest Muslim sources, Muhammad delivered revelations from the devil. Surah 53 originally declared that in addition to Allah, Muslims can pray to three goddesses, Alat, Alusa, and Manat. Muslims can deny this all they want. The fact is we have 37 sources that go back to their earliest historians and scholars and commentators reporting that Muhammad did deliver these verses. And so who are we going to go with? If Muslims tell us not to trust all of their earliest scholars, then all of, okay, your earliest scholars were a bunch of liars. Don't tell me you know anything about Muhammad. 
Or if you're going to say that they were trustworthy, then we have extremely good evidence that Muhammad delivered these satanic verses. So the only reasonable interpretation of the evidence is that Muhammad really did claim that he had delivered revelations from Satan, and this means that he was susceptible to a demonic influence, which, probably not coincidentally, was this very first interpretation of his revelations. And by the way, this fits in perfectly. This fits in perfectly with the Christian interpretation of who Muhammad was. If Muhammad was susceptible to demonic influence and to the teachings of Satan, that is exactly what we would expect, given that he is someone who denies the true gospel. But there's more. We saw from multiple references in Al-Bukhari, Islam's most trusted source on the life of Muhammad, that Muhammad was the victim of black magic. This shows that he is, again, susceptible to spiritual attack. And all his enemy needed to do was get a hair from his hairbrush, and he could uh, make Muhammad have delusional thoughts and false beliefs for a year simply by getting a hair. Is this what we would expect from God's last and greatest prophet? Is this the sort of thing we see in the Bible? No, we see demons terrified in the presence of Jesus, and yet the demons seem to be completely victorious over Muhammad. And just as a, a little personal example here, since we're on the topic of uh, Muhammad and the spiritual uh, attacks upon him, about 11 years or so ago, a high priest of Wicca tried to cast a spell on me. And you know what happened? He died. Now, did God kill him? I don't know. Uh, I know this. His spell did not work. Why? Because he who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. And if that's true of me, and, and who in the world am I, why wouldn't it be even more true of God's last and greatest messenger? But instead we see complete terror, that demons were attacking him, delivering revelations from the devil, and susceptible to black magic. This is not what we would expect. So we want to know if demonic powers could have been at work in Muhammad's teachings. We've seen that Muhammad's first impression of his revelations was that he was demon-possessed. We've seen that the early Muslim sources report that Muhammad delivered revelations from the devil. We've seen that a person could give Muhammad delusional thoughts and false beliefs simply by getting a hair from his hairbrush. Uh, I find it simply shocking that there are Muslims who have no problem with any of this. History is filled with people claiming to speak for God and their messages contradict one another. Most of these people have to be false prophets. So who are we going to listen to? I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear that a man thinks he's demon-possessed, that he delivers revelations from Satan, and that people can cast spells on him, I find it absolutely impossible to, that he is one of the candidates for being a true prophet. So we have good evidence that some of Muhammad's revelations had a purely human origin. Islam looks like a mixture of Jewish teachings, heretical Christian teachings, and pagan practices. It looks like something that came from 7th century Arabia. We know that Muhammad plagiarized other sources, false sources. We've even seen that, Muhammad, that some of Muhammad's revelations have no purpose other than satisfying his desires. Aisha herself, his own wife, noticed this. At the same time, we've seen that there's something much darker at work in the formation of Islam. Islam looks like it was designed to keep people from God, from the one true gospel. 
And Christians, again, were warned ahead of time that this would be the case. We've seen that Muhammad's first impression of his revelations was that he was demon-possessed, that he delivered revelations from the devil, that he was susceptible to black magic. All of this together gives us reason to think that there is something demonic at work in the origin of Islam. The only question before us now is whether we have any good reason to think that Islam is from God. Is there evidence so strong for Islam that it will outweigh all of these problems? For instance, if Muhammad had risen from the dead, something like that, that would, might be evidence so powerful that we would, we would say that it outweighed any difficulties we could find. Now, we looked at 13 arguments for Islam, five that are based on the Quran and eight that come from the minds of modern Muslim apologists. This is a good time to bring up a very important point with all of these arguments. Let's go through them. The argument from literary excellence claims that the Quran is so amazingly written, it must come from God. We saw that it's absurd to base belief and inspiration on literary excellence and that the Quran isn't that great to begin with. But what I want to point out is this. The only way we could ever accept this argument is if we accept a Muslim criterion of investigation, namely that literary excellence implies divine origin. But who in the world accepts that? Who in the world would accept that for Mozart? Who in the world would accept that for Shakespeare? That's just not the way human beings think. So why should we agree from the beginning of this argument that literary excellence is the correct criterion of a true revelation? The only reason to believe that is if we already believed the Quran. The only reason to think that literary excellence implies divine revelation would be if we were already Muslims. What that means is that no one who's not already a Muslim is going to think that this is a good argument. And so the only people in the world who would be impressed by this, who could be compelled by this argument are people who are already presupposing that Islam is true. What's that? That means that this argument is, at bottom, circular. The argument from doctrinal continuity claims that since Muhammad's doctrines are the same as the doctrines of the Bible, he must be a prophet of God. As we've seen, his teachings were diametrically opposed to the teachings of Christianity. Death, resurrection, deity, what does Christianity do with sin? Islam is opposed to all of these doctrines. The only way around this is for Muslims to say that Christianity has been corrupted. But what evidence do they have that Christianity has been corrupted, that Jesus originally taught Islam? The only reason they have to think this is because they're already presupposing that Islam is true. So if we presuppose that Islam is true, then we know that Jesus originally taught Islam. And since what we have in the Bible now doesn't teach Islam, then it must have been corrupted. What is this? Once again, the argument presupposes that Islam is true, and yet the argument is meant to show that Islam is true. That's circularity. The argument from internal consistency claims that Muhammad's teachings must be from God because they're so incredibly consistent with one another. But what about all of the inconsistent teachings? Here Muslims say that some teachings abrogate or cancel other teachings, so they admit that the Quran is filled with inconsistent claims. They just say that whichever one came last is the one that God really wants for us. But how can we accept the doctrine of abrogation as a defense of a book that claims perfect consistency? We can only accept the doctrine of abrogation, and we can only accept all of the various Muslim uh, reconciliations of these inconsistencies 
if we presuppose that Islam is true. I mean, think about it. If you're a non-Muslim, the Muslim says, look, this book is perfectly consistent. We open it up. There are inconsistencies all over the place. The Muslim says, ah, for most of them, you have to reinterpret. You have to reinterpret them to make them consistent. And for the rest, it's because we have a doctrine of abrogation, namely, you know, there can be two totally inconsistent teachings, and whichever one came last, that's the correct one. Well, why should we accept those sorts of justifications? Muslims accept them because they're presupposing that Islam is true, that there can't be any genuine inconsistencies. But this argument is meant to show the rest of us that Islam is true, and as such, it fails completely. The argument from perfect preservation claims that we know the Quran is the word of God because the Quran has been perfectly preserved from the very beginning. But we have tons of evidence of changes in the Quran. Muslims look at all the evidence and try to explain it away. They say that God revealed the Quran in many different forms. And that's why there are so many differences. Muslims often reject sources that report variants in the Quran and problems in the transmission of the Quran. When we look to Islam's earliest scholars and find that there were disagreements about what was supposed to be in the Quran, that there were uh, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of variants between any of these manuscripts, what do Muslims say? They'll say, well, you know, the ones that ultimately went into the Quran, those were the correct ones. But why should we assume that? In other words, if a non-Muslim is coming to this and the Muslims are claiming that perfect preservation shows that the Quran is the word of God, we look at the evidence and we see differences in words, differences in phrases, entire chapters missing, sections of, of passages, missage, passages missing. And the Muslim says, ah, but there are reasons for all of that. Well, you're presupposing that there are reasons for that because you're already a Muslim. If you're not a Muslim it's obvious that it hasn't been perfectly preserved. And so this argument as well is circular. The argument from biblical prophecy claims that there are prophecies about Muhammad in the Bible. The Bible actually declares that Muhammad was a false prophet, so that's certainly a problem. And the passages that Muslims appeal to certainly don't say that Muhammad was a prophet. So why do Muslims continue to claim that the Bible supports Islam and to use this as evidence for their religion? because that's what the Quran tells them. They're presupposing that Islam is true, and that way, when you open the Quran, and Surah 7:157 says that there are prophecies about Muhammad in the Bible, they accept this is true, and so the prophecies must be there, and since the Quran is offering this as a good argument, it must be a good argument. But it's not a good argument. This should tell Muslims that their Quran is wrong, but it doesn't. This argument cannot get off the ground unless we assume from the beginning that Islam is true. The argument from scientific accuracy claims that we can know that the Quran is the word of God because of the amazing scientific accuracy. Well, what do we do when we open the Quran and we find the sun setting in a pool of murky water or sperm forming right here? Or we find that human embryos go through a blood clot stage? What do we do when we find out that stars are missiles? What do we do when we find these things? Well, Muslims tell us to reinterpret all of them. Now here's a question. Why should we reinterpret all of them? You're telling us that this is your evidence for the Quran. And I open it and I see very clear statements claiming, one, that stars are missiles that God uses to shoot demons, and two, that shooting stars are stars. This is clearly false. Why should I reinterpret that? How, how much, what sort of stretch of the imagination would I need to reinterpret that? A pretty large one. 
So why should I do this when this is the evidence that Muslims are using to show that their book is the word of God? So how does this argument work in the minds of Muslims? Well, since they already believe, since they're already convinced that the Quran is the word of God, whenever they get to these problems and these obvious scientific inaccuracies, they reinterpret them. And then once they've gone through the entire Quran, reinterpreted absolutely everything, lo and behold, the Quran is scientifically accurate. And then they say, look, it's scientifically accurate. It must be the word of God. Well, it was only scientifically accurate after you reinterpreted all of the clear teachings that are clearly false. The argument for miracles claims that Muhammad performed all kinds of miracles and that we can therefore know that he was a prophet. But the Quran says otherwise. The Quran says that Muhammad never performed miracles, that he was only a warner and that his only miracle was the Quran. So why should we accept claims written centuries after the events that contradict the Quran. Well, Muslims want to make an argument for Muhammad, and they believe that prophets perform miracles, and so Muhammad must have performed miracles. And so they go back to the Quran, they reinterpret all of these passages that say Muhammad didn't perform miracles, and then they say, ah, these sources centuries later say that he did, therefore believe in the miracles. Well, that may be okay if you're a Muslim and you're presupposing once again that the Quran is the word of God. But for the rest of us, you tell us that Muhammad performed miracles. We see no early evidence of this. And the earliest evidence we find says exactly the opposite, that he didn't perform miracles. That's just not a good argument. The argument from fulfilled predictions say, claims that Muhammad accurately predicted the future. Well, the examples that Muslims give aren't very persuasive. And we've seen that Muhammad uh, predicted several things that didn't come to pass and that simply can't come to pass. So what do Muslims do with these? Well, they presuppose that Muhammad couldn't have said anything false. And so maybe this somehow is going to refer to something that happens in the future, even though the, the time limit is, uh, has expired. But think about that. Once again, reinterpreting based on their prior faith in Muhammad and then using they're reinterpretations as evidence that Islam is true. I, I, I can't imagine a case for anything getting any weaker than this. The argument from historical accuracy claims that Muhammad had a miraculous knowledge of history. Well, what about all the places where Muhammad was wrong? What about all the things he said that were clearly false? Well, we have to reinterpret all of those things and we have to assume that history is wrong. And this is what Muslims do. When we learn that all of history supports Jesus' death by crucifixion, Muslims will say, all of history must be wrong. The Quran is correct. So how can we conclude that the Quran is correct when it comes to history? We have to assume from the very beginning that Islam is true. That way, when we get to all of the historical evidence that contradicts the Quran, we can say, well, all of the historical evidence must be wrong. And then once we've shown that the Quran is right and that all of the historical evidence is wrong, we say, aha, there's no contradiction between the Quran and history because you've already thrown out all of history. That's not a good argument. You're assuming, once again, what you're trying to prove. The argument from rapid growth claims that Islam must be true because it's spread so, so rapidly. Well, other things have spread rapidly. Other things have spread much more rapidly than Islam. So why do Muslims think that this is a good criterion for Islam when they would accept it for nothing other than Islam? Well, once again, they're only thinking this way about Islam because they're thinking that it's, they're assuming that it's true from the beginning. And so, look, it spread. It must be the truth. Well, no one would ever conclude that about anything. 
that simply because something grows rapidly, it must be from God. Once again, why are Muslims thinking this way with regards to Islam? Only because they assume that it's true from the beginning and they're so desperate to prove that to the rest of the world. The argument from numerical signs claims that there are amazing mathematical evidences for the Quran. Here again, we've seen that this could be done with many books. It can be done with the Bible. People have actually shown from the poems of Edgar Allan Poe that you can find all these sorts of mathematical miracles, these numerical signs. Why don't Muslims accept the works of Edgar Allan Poe as inspired prophecy? Because they would only think of applying this criterion to Islam. We've seen that Muslims will use anything as an argument for Islam, no matter how absurd it is. And when we examined the argument from uh, numerical signs, we saw how deceptive Muslims are and how creative they are when they're trying to get these numbers to match up. So why are Muslims so desperate? Well, I think it's because they're so convinced that the Quran is a masterpiece. It just must contain these mathematical signs. And so when they go there, they'll, they'll see them wherever they, wherever they can find them, even if they're not really there. The argument for moral excellence claims that Muhammad was such a great person, he must be a prophet. Well, when you tell a non-Muslim that someone is very moral, we get a certain picture in mind, a certain picture of someone who only does good things and doesn't do all the things that we normally think of as bad. So what happens when we go to the history of Muhammad and we find out that he had more wives than his own revelations allow, that he had sex with a nine-year-old girl, that when one of his wives got old and unattractive, he wanted to get rid of her? What do we do when we find that he married the wife of his own adopted son? What do we do when we find that he allowed his followers to rape their female captives? What do we do when we find that he supported his, uh, his religion through robbery? What do we do when we find out that he tortured a man to death for money? What do we do when we find all of these things? The Muslims tell us, ah, reinterpret them. Assume that Muhammad had a really good reason for doing all of these things. Once again, why should we reinterpret them? You're claiming this as evidence and then telling us we have to reinterpret all the evidence that doesn't fit your claim. But that's just not how it works. Muslims can reinterpret that because they're assuming that Muhammad is the greatest moral person, the greatest moral example in all of history. And so... If he did things that seem bad, there must have been a good reason for it. So they're presupposing that there's a good reason for Muhammad's actions. But that's not what the evidence tells us. And so as far as evidence is concerned, if this argument is presented to a non-Muslim, it fails completely. The argument from positive impact says that Islam has had such a positive impact on the world, it must come from God. Well, what about things like violence towards women, common across the Muslim world? What about the practice common in the Muslim world of marrying girls who are six and seven and eight and nine, year old, nine years old? What about the violence in Islam? What about the Islamic teaching that uh, Muslims are called to fight all non-Muslims until these non-Muslims submit? What about killing people who leave Islam? We don't think that these things are good. Here again, Muslims have to presuppose that these things are good. Since these things were given by a true prophet, Muhammad, they must be correct. And since Islam spreads these things around the world, Islam is good. Well, that may work if you're a Muslim and you're being circular. But for the rest of us, you tell, if you tell us something has had a positive impact on the world, we're looking at it and saying, okay, how has this made life better? What has it done for the world that you're claiming this? And we look and we just don't see a positive impact from Islam. 
the point of all this is that these arguments don't work at all. None of them do. The only way any of these arguments can get off the ground is if we start off by assuming that Islam is true so that we can later reinterpret all the evidence that, con that, that contradicts this. What this means is that the entire case for Islam is at bottom circular and illogical. We never get to anything solid. We never get to anything that can prove to a non-Muslim that Islam is true. And so we have good evidence that Muhammad was getting revelations from purely human sources, the people around him, his own mind, his own desires. We also have good evidence that Muhammad was being influenced by demonic forces. But we have absolutely no evidence that Muhammad was receiving any of his revelations from God. Not only this, we've seen that we actually have several arguments that offer positive, argu that offer positive evidence against the prophet of Muhammad. We saw the argument from demonic influence. This is based on things that Muslims have to believe. Muslims have to believe that Deuteronomy 18.20 is the word of God because that's the passage they appeal to most frequently for their prophecy about Muhammad and because Muhammad put, a hand, put his hand on a copy of the Torah and swore that it's the word of God. Well, if this is the word of God, then we certainly have two criteria for spotting a false prophet. One, if a prophet speaks in the name of other gods or promotes polytheism, he's a false prophet. And two, if a prophet delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, he's a false prophet. Muhammad did both of these things, not according to me, not according to other Christians, not according to Jews, not according to Hindus, according to Islam's earliest sources. Muhammad did both of these things. And so you can compare this with the, the arguments for Islam. The arguments for Islam all had false premises in them. And they all require you to presuppose that Islam is true. Here we have an argument that's based on history and that's based on something that Muslims have to grant to be consistent. And so this is a good argument. We looked at the argument from theological incoherence. Uh, Islam just cannot made, make sense. When we put all of these doctrines together about, for instance, the formation of Christianity, we find that they cannot possibly fit together into a coherent religion. And that means it's false. We saw the argument from forced inconsistency. The Quran tells Muslims to go to the people of the book. It says that the people of the book still have those books. Well, what happens when we go to the books that the Quran tells us to go to? We find that they're totally inconsistent with the teachings of Islam. So these teachings are the inspired word of God, and they're inconsistent with, with Islam. And the only way out of this is for Muslims to be totally inconsistent. And so if your religion or if your uh, belief or if your political doctrine, whatever it is, if it forces you to be inconsistent, you cannot possibly be logical while you're holding this position. It has to be false. Again, this is logic 101. Now, there is one more point to consider here um, as far as evidence for and against Islam. You see, if there's good evidence that another religion is true, then that's evidence against Islam. If there's evidence for, for instance, Christianity, and Christianity is inconsistent with Islam, then that is evidence that Islam is false as well. So think about Christianity. What are the arguments for Christianity? Well, there are all, there are all kinds of arguments for Christianity. 
But are our arguments similar to the Muslim arguments? We saw that every single argument that's offered routinely by Muslims is flawed and horribly flawed, both illogical because it's requiring you to be circular and also because uh, they're factually wrong. They're based on false premises. So is Christianity like that? Are the Christian arguments circular? Are they based on false premises? Well, no, they're not. In Christianity, we have a general case that goes like this. First, there are Old Testament prophecies. We're told in the Old Testament that someone would, that God would come into the world, that God would enter into his creation. We're told that someone would die for the sins of the world. We're told both of these things in the book of Isaiah. At the end of Isaiah 53, we are told that if this person offers himself as a guilt offering, he will prolong his day, so he will go on living. This is the resurrection. We have all of these things. And also in the Old Testament, we're told that the Old Covenant is not the final covenant, covenant that another message is coming along. So we're told that another covenant is coming. We're told what the core elements of this other covenant are going to be. And that's exactly what happened in the world when Christianity came. Think about the incarnation. We have prophecies, not simply that Jesus would be born of a virgin, but that his incarnation would, he would be God with us. So this fulfills prophecy. Now Muslims reject this, but they only reject this because, once again, they're assuming that Islam is true. If we simply go where the evidence points, you say here was a prediction. And again, Muslims in their arguments are they're appealing to prophecies. They're assuming that prophecies work. They have to agree to this. And yet when we go to an actual clear prophecy, someone's going to die for sins, God's going to enter into his creation, suddenly prophecies just aren't that valuable. But we have evidence of the incarnation, both because of Old Testament prophecy and because of Jesus' claims. We have the life of Jesus, which quite simply is the most miraculous life in history according to Christianity and according to Islam. While Islam denies that Muhammad performed miracles, it says over and over again that Jesus could do things like raise the dead. So according to Islam, Jesus lived the most miraculous life in history. During his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the sick and the lame. He cured lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He made the deaf hear and the mute speak. He cast out demons. He walked on water. The winds and the waves obeyed his voice. Now, if God were to enter into his creation, that's the sort of life I would expect to see. And that's exactly what we find. So if this person is living this miraculous life, I would, the first thing I would do is say, all right, if I'm going to listen to anyone tell me about God, it's going to be that guy. Again, false prophets have gone out in the world. They're all over the place. Who are we going to listen to? I don't know about you. I'm going to listen to the one who's performing miracles left and right. So what did Jesus claim about himself? Well, Jesus claimed to be the divine son of God. Why do Muslims reject this? They don't reject it based on the evidence. If you go to the early historical evidence, all the evidence is consistent that Jesus claimed some pretty amazing things about himself. Muslims assume that these, the historical records of these claims must be wrong. Why? Because they're assuming from the beginning that Islam is true. But if we just look at the evidence, we find that there are four ways... There are four ways we can examine what Jesus was claiming. We can look at what Jesus said, records of his words. We can look at what Jesus did, things he went out and did. 
We can look at what other people who were around him at the time said about him, and we can look at what other people around him did about him. And when we do this, what do we find? Well, when we examine Jesus' claims, we find he's doing all sorts of things that a mere prophet, he's saying all sorts of things that a mere prophet should not be saying. When we examine things that Jesus did, we find that he's performing miracles in his own name. And that is very different from the Old Testament pattern. In the Old Testament, if a prophet wanted to perform a miracle, that prophet got down on his face, prayed for hours, and then the miracle would happen. With Jesus, he said what? Do you believe that I am able to do this? This was a miracle from him. So he's performing miracles in his own name. He's, he's also doing things like forgiving sins. These are things Jesus is doing. So when we examine what he said, he made all sorts of claims that no mere prophet should make, the I am statements, claiming to be the apocalyptic son of man, claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, what man can claim to be the Lord of God's holy day of rest. And when we look at things that Jesus did, we find the same thing, doing things that no prophet before him would do. We can also look at uh, what other people said about him. What did other people say about him? Well, those who followed him, people like John, said things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. People who followed him like Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my God. So we can look at the people who believed in him. What did they say? They declared that he is God. What about the people who didn't believe in him? Even they accused him of blasphemy. Jesus was ultimately killed for speaking against God. Well, what do the people who believed in Jesus and the people who didn't believe in him agree on? They're agreeing that he is saying several things that a normal human being or even a prophet should not be claiming. The difference is one group believed him and the other group did not. And finally, what, do, uh, what did people do about Jesus? Well, the people who followed him bowed down and worshipped him. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus was worshipped shortly after his birth. He was worshipped on numerous occasions during his earthly ministry. He was worshipped after his resurrection. And he never once said, hey, what are you doing? Stop worshiping me. I'm just a prophet. What about the people who didn't believe in Jesus? What did they do about him? They put him to death for blasphemy. So wherever we look, and again, these are the only four ways we can investigate what Jesus was claiming about himself. No matter what way we look, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what others said about him, what others did about him, all of the evidence we have points to him claiming things that no other person should claim, that no mere human could claim. The question is, was Jesus right? Was he speaking the truth? Some people didn't believe that. Well, when we look at the evidence for Jesus' death and we look at the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we find that this is a miracle that simply uh, had not occurred. People had been raised from the dead by Jesus, but the resurrection is something different. It is a glorified state. People who are raised from the dead by Jesus would die, and then he would raise them, and then they would go on finish their life, and die again. Resurrection is something permanent, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has God's stamp of approval on him, unless we're willing to assume that God would raise a heretic, that God is going to raise someone from the dead. God is going to resurrect someone. Is God going to resurrect someone who is a heretic, who speaks false teachings? I would expect God to resurrect someone uh, in order to confirm the person's message. And what did Jesus claim about himself? Jesus claimed that he's the divine son of God. The rest of his message centered often around the kingdom of God. So 
I don't know about you, but I'm going to accept that message. If there's something in there I don't like, that's too bad. Uh, I'm going to submit to the one who rose from the dead. So the core of the Christian gospel consists of Jesus' death, resurrection, and deity. Is it a coincidence that our strongest historical evidence centers around these three doctrines? Is it a coincidence that of all the things that happen, we have Old Testament prophecies supporting these core doctrines? Is this a coincidence? Of course not. The case for Christianity isn't circular. It doesn't require us to presuppose that Christianity is true. It simply requires us to go where the evidence points. And in this case, it points towards Christianity. So Christianity is true based on the evidence, and this means that Islam is false. We therefore have numerous lines of evidence telling us that Islam is false, and we have absolutely nothing to tell us that it's true. Now, I'd like to conclude with a personal reflection, why I'm not a Muslim. Jesus and Muhammad are the two people that I've studied most in my life. I've investigated both Christianity and Islam, and I've tried to refute both Christianity and Islam. The, na- the main difference between the two for me has been that after trying to refute Christianity, I became a Christian. But after trying to refute Islam, I can't imagine ever becoming a Muslim. It's not even a consideration. The entire time I was investigating Christianity, I was bothered. I was frightened eventually because what I thought was going to be the case was not the case. When I thought that I was going to examine it and find all the problems and all the holes and that all the evidence was against it, I found the exact opposite. When I was still an atheist, I recognized that the core of the Christian message consists of those three doctrines, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his deity. When I tried to refute Christianity, I went after these core beliefs, but the more I examined the evidence, the more I examined, that, the more I realized that the evidence supports the Christian view. And the only way around this is to distort the facts or to conclude uh, obviously absurd things. If we approach the evidence honestly, without trying to bend the facts to our liking, we simply have to conclude that Jesus claimed to be divine and that he rose from the dead. Now, Later, I investigated Islam, and I knew that the case for Islam comes down to whether we can trust Muhammad and the Quran. But when I examined the central arguments for Islam, I didn't find that the evidence supports them, as I had found with Christianity. On the contrary, I found that the arguments for Islam crumbled, absolutely crumbled, as soon as the slightest effort was made to critique or examine them. My poetry is better than your poetry, therefore my poetry is the inspired word of God. What sort of nonsense is that? The scientific evidence supports our book, as long as you're willing to ignore all of the obviously scientific obviously non-scientific, totally contrary to science verses you find in there. What in the name of common sense is that? Oh, if you just look at the life of Muhammad, you'll see that he was the greatest, most reliable messenger of God in history, as long as none of the following issues bother you. A, having sex with a nine-year-old girl. B, marrying more women than your own revelations allow. 
C, receiving revelations that have no purpose other than satisfying your desires. D, marrying the wife of your own adopted son. E, having sex with your slave girls. F, thinking you're demon-possessed. G, becoming suicidal. H, delivering revelations from the devil. I, being the victim of black magic. J, saying things about Jesus that totally contradict all of history. K, repeating stories based on forgeries and passing them off as the word of God. L, assassinating people for criticizing your religion, M, executing people for making fun of you, N, beheading hundreds of Jews for trying to defend themselves once they realize you were trying to eliminate them, O, starting a war with Mecca when you had a chance to live in peace in Medina, P, enslaving thousands of people, Q, allowing your followers to rape their female captives, R, taking the most beautiful captives back to your own tent, S, telling your followers it's okay to beat their wives into submission. T, telling your followers that women are stupid and that their testimony is unreliable. U, torturing people for money. V, supporting your religion by robbing people. W, preaching a message of violence, oppression, and cruelty. X, teaching your followers to believe in a God who loves only them and no one else. Y, supporting idolatrous practices like kissing the black stone and bowing down to the Kaaba. And Z, keeping more people from knowing the one true God than any other person in all of history. Now, if none of that bothers you, then Muhammad was clearly reliable. Well, suppose all of that does bother me. Suppose I don't just blindly accept anyone who claims to be God's last and greatest prophet. Suppose I actually demand that arguments for a prophet are consistent and logical and have good facts to support them. What then? When I turn to Islam, I see a mountain of problems. And I ask myself, is there anything anywhere in Islam's arguments that can outweigh all of this? And the answer is no, there's absolutely nothing. Well, if there's no evidence, then all we're left with is the problems. And in Islam, it's problems, problems, problems all the way down. So how can anyone believe that Muhammad was a prophet I don't know, but more than a billion people do. I hope this series will be somewhat helpful to you in your efforts to refute the false teachings of Muhammad and to show Muslims that uh, Jesus Christ is the one true Lord and he is the one we should listen to and his doctrines are the ones that we should be following. And glory to him and praise his name. God bless you all.